welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am finally going to finish the essay that I started way back in June. This is the last part of Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. And if you recall, this was a pamphlet that was put together with a couple of articles that Colin I had actually written before the revolution, but they were hastily reissued after the revolution because there wasn't enough material on the situation of women, and she thought it would be really useful to reproduce these articles so that women in Russia in particular would know what was happening in other countries and the history of women's movements within social democratic, larger social democratic party movements and socialist movements across Europe. So the last time I spoke about this article, Colin Tai was talking about the relationship between the suffragettes or bourgeois feminists who were basically trying to advocate for the franchise so that women could vote alongside men and how social democratic parties in Europe responded to the threat of the women's franchise or or the activism of these bourgeois feminists who were trying to push their governments to extend women the vote. So what Kalantai was saying uh, in the last uh, part of this essay that I read, and she I mean, she was basically saying that how curious it was that socialist parties really only started paying attention to women's issues when they realized that women might be able to vote in the future. And then suddenly it became really important to make sure that the female members of the proletariat didn't, you know, side with the bourgeoisie because they were suffragettes, but rather sided with the working class movements. And so for the first time, there was all of this work being done, agitation being done among women workers, so that if they did get uh, the right to vote, they would be voting for the Social Democratic Parties. Again, I think it's also really important to remember that Kalantai, before the revolution, had a long stint as a Menshevik. Uh, she did believe in the possibility of social democracy or democratic socialism, depending on what you call it. In Germany, at least, if you think about people like Karl Liebknecht and August Bebel, uh, there were there was a strong and growing workers' party uh, that was using parliamentary elections to gain power and authority and influence. And Kalantai seemed to be, at least in this very early period, thinking that the expansion of democracy, the expansion of voting rights to all workers, including women, would only benefit the social democratic or democratic socialist parties that she was supporting and within whom she had many close colleagues, including Clara Zetkin in Germany. So this final part of the essay, which is very, very short, I'm just going to read, is her kind of summation or summary of what is um, what has been happening in Western Europe. Okay, so this is Colin Tai. We observe the same picture in other countries. In England, the indifference of the socialist parties towards the women workers movement can be explained by the success of the suffragettes among women workers. For a long time, the suffragettes were the only active spokeswomen for the political demands of women. 
but the revival of the question of the radical reform of the whole system of representation in England also generated an interest in the women workers movement. In 1906, the Women's Labor League was formed, presenting itself as the women's wing of the Labor Party and setting itself the aim firstly of uniting all of the forces of the female proletariat and then gaining the equality of political rights for women. In 1909, the Social Democratic Party of England set up a separate committee for carrying out special propaganda among women. Members of the party, predominantly women, raised the campaign for universal franchise to counterbalance the demands the suffragettes were making for electoral qualification. The struggle for electoral reform in Austria, in spite of the removal from the agenda of the fifth article of the electoral rules, acted as a spur to the revival of party propaganda among women and led to the definite and systematic organization of this special branch of party work. In Belgium, the beginning of the women's socialist movement dates from the time of the struggle for electoral reform. In the United States, where many urgent class problems flared up before the workers and where the movement constantly stumbled against obstacles which were connected with the flaws in the worn-out system of bourgeois parliamentarianism, the drawing of women workers into active political struggle was dictated by the interests of the party. In 1908, the Socialist Party of America organized a women's committee for agitation and propaganda among women workers. On the other hand, in countries such as France or Switzerland, where questions of further democratization of the state system were not being raised, the women's socialist movement was only weakly developed. In conclusion, one cannot help noting that in every country, except Germany, the majority of women's cells, that is commissions and bureaus and so on, within the party structure are of very recent origin, having crystallized during the first five or six years immediately before the war. And here she means World War I, of course. The progress made during these last years in drawing women workers into the party is all the more striking, and the Women Workers Conference in Copenhagen was a bright testimony of this. That was in 1910. There is no doubt that with the help that the work among the female proletariat is now receiving from the Social Democrats, the involvement of the women workers in the class struggle will go forward at an even faster rate. The participation of women workers in a general proletarian movement has ceased to be a luxury and has become a basic necessity for the success of the revolutionary struggle. All right, so that's the end of that essay. And uh, as I'm sure you'll remember, these were these, uh, this was a pamphlet that was issued in 1919. And I think it's really interesting here because much of my work has been about how the struggle between socialist women's activists and between what we might call bourgeois or liberal feminists has been a catalyst for the global women's movement or for the progress of women's rights sort of internationally from the very beginning. Uh, a lot of my work really focuses on the way that 
the challenge of socialist feminist organizing has really spurred on change in the capitalist countries because liberal feminists or people in power felt like they had to respond to this real critique of capital uh, and, and the role that capital plays in expropriating women's reproductive labors in the home. But I think this is a really interesting essay because here, even though Kalantai isn't explicit about it, she is admitting that social democratic parties and socialist parties and revolutionary movements didn't really care that much about women until liberal feminists got out there and started advocating for expanding the franchise to women. And so in an interesting way, the history of the global women's movement, the history of what we might call like the the longer history of women's activism or the longer history of feminism is in so many ways a dialectic between women who primarily focused on patriarchy as the primary cause of their oppression and those women who really believed that it was capitalism. And of course, there were many women who believed that it was definitely a combination of both and that patriarchy patriarchy and capitalism worked together, which is why we sometimes refer to patriarchal capitalism. But I think that, you know, it's it's interesting because Kalantai herself was extremely critical of bourgeois feminists. She would go to their conferences and actually heckle them. She did not like these wealthy women, these upper 10,000, as Clara Zetkin called them, who were only concerned with getting rights and privileges for women of their class and didn't really care very much about the interest of working class women. But in an interesting way, in this essay, Kalantai is basically giving those liberal feminists some credit, grudgingly, I think, but she is giving them credit. She is recognizing that their activism actually ended up catalyzing men's interests in working among women to increase women's participation in the social democratic parties once it was clear that women might win the right to vote. Basically, men men in positions of power, even very leftist men, uh, the brochalists, as I think they're sometimes called, or the manarchists. I mean, there are all these words for this incredibly heavily male-dominated arena of leftist politics, which was, even in its very early years, very anti agitation among women, very anti the idea that you could divide, you should divide the proletariat. Basically, women should you know, not need special agitational efforts. They should just come on board uh, as workers and not put their identity as women above their identity as working class people. But of course, as Kolontai and Zetkin and so many European socialists at this time, writing in the late 19th or the early 20th century, recognized women workers really had different needs and had different special kinds of obstacles that stood in front of their radicalization or politicalization because many of them were often illiterate and they didn't have education. They were often raised very religious. They had children. They had familial responsibilities that made it very difficult for them to attend the party meetings that men went to that made it almost impossible for them to read the party newspapers, which were being published. And so Kolontai and others, you know, really felt that it was absolutely necessary to agitate separately among women while still keeping women within the broader tent of the Social Democratic Party. Men showed very little interest in that until the rise of these 
bourgeois feminists who were clamoring for the franchise. And I do think it's worth pointing out here that Kalantai herself probably benefited uh, from this tension that, you know, that people actually listened to her in Germany and in Europe and then later in the Soviet Union, that they took her concerns about special agitational work among women seriously because they saw how successful these bourgeois feminists were being among working women. And they feared that they would lose women's votes to more liberal parties because the bourgeois feminists were really out there talking about the political enfranchisement of women and talking about women's education and women's access to the professions in a way that the socialists had not yet really articulated. She says that in places like France and Switzerland, where the issue of expanding the franchise to women was not on the agenda, it's very clear that the socialist parties did not really put very much effort into radicalizing or educating its female proletarian population. All right, so that is the end of uh, this second essay, Forms of Organization of Women Workers in the West, which was the second part of this pamphlet. And I have now, including these two essays, I have done discreetly 28 works of Alexandra Kolontai. I believe there are 111 episodes. This is the 111th episode of my podcast. And I still have 19 more works to go. I am going to start a new season of this podcast and I am also, so I'm going to be looking a little bit more deeply for personal letters and things that Colin Ty wrote that were not necessarily published or things that have not yet appeared in English. Uh, I'm going to be doing a little bit of uh, a research and I think, you know, trying to get a little bit deeper into her psyche, who she was as a woman, her experiences in the international movement. And one of the things that I think I'm going to also do is I have been going back and looking for contemporaneous newspaper articles about Alexandra Kollontai, particularly in Europe and in the United States. As I think I've mentioned before, she did a lecture tour here in the United States. She was quite well known in Europe as a very popular speaker, a very outspoken pacifist during the First World War. And there are lots of really interesting news articles written about Alexandra Kollontai that were published in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so I think I'm going to have a special series called Kollontai in the News, where I am going to read the contemporaneous reports of her activities when she was ambassador to Norway or ambassador to Mexico or Sweden and try to give you a little bit more context about her life. Because one of the things that I think is really interesting and important is that, you know, Kalantai was a product of her time. And not all of us are familiar with all of the major political issues and things that were going on in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when she was active as a politician. And she is really often in her writing, reflecting upon things that are going on in the world. She's really trying to be relevant and to connect with her readers, particularly women of the proletariat. And so I think it's would be good to get a little bit of sense of the kinds of challenges that she faced in her personal life. In particular, 
she was constantly kind of being criticized in the press. She she might be, you know, what we would call today being trolled um, by the bourgeois media, particularly when she was in the United States and in Mexico. And so I have excavated a lot of these articles. I did a deep dive when I was working on the Kalantai chapter in Red Valkyries, and I managed to find, you know, well over 70 different discrete articles about Kalantai in the news media from the early 20th and late 19th century. And I was able to use some of that in the book, but there are so many other really interesting tidbits that I think it would be fun to have a special Kalantai in the news section of this podcast where I read the news item and give a little bit of context about, you know, what was going on and uh, what was happening and what were the fears uh, that kind of precipitated or inspired these articles. And then, of course, as I said, we'll keep going with another 19 discrete pieces of Alexandra Kollontai's work. You know, one of the things that my daughter said when I talked to her when she was home, she's gone back to university now, but when she was home, she was saying that my the name of my podcast is really cryptic because nobody knows. They don't understand why I would call it AK-47. I thought it was kind of clever, Alexandra Kollontai, 47 Works. Um, but it does present me with an interesting conundrum, which is what happens when I actually get to 47. I still have to read 19 more, so it's not a problem I have to think about right away. But I do realize that if you were looking for a, a Kollontai podcast, you might not be able to find my podcast because of its odd name. Uh, I guess I'm not very good at you know branding or marketing or whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing. But I don't think I'm going to change the name of the podcast because people know it. If they know it, they know it already by AK-47. Maybe I'll put a little bit more descriptive text in the subtitle. I don't know. But if you know of anyone who is interested in Alexandra Kalantai or who is already a pre-existing Kalantai nerd, that's what my, my daughter called me, a Kalantai nerd. I guess that's a pretty accurate description. But if you know people who are interested, I would really ask you to share uh, the information about the, the podcast, share the link to the website or wherever, you know, if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, I really greatly appreciate people spreading uh, the news of this podcast by word of mouth because I don't have a real presence otherwise. And I'm not, you know, trying to do anything, you know, major here. I'm just, just want to talk about Kalantai. It's something really fun that I like to do. And it's been a real pleasure to be doing this since January of 2019. So we'll be coming up in January on the four-year anniversary of the podcast, and hopefully I'll do something special for that. But in the meantime, thank you all, as always, so very, very, very much for listening, for your support while I took a little bit of a break to deal with the kind of long COVID stuff. And now more than ever, we need to stick together. We need strength. We need solidarity. And we need to keep up the good fight. Mm-hmm.